I know, but like, okay. I, I put it over there. So we are continuing our overview of Tanya. Um, and again, the first 17 chapters are focusing on explaining the, the word karev, that it is close, beloved in your heart. Um, and the first eight chapters are these introductory concepts, right, where everything is being redefined from the perspective of godliness. So we learn about the two souls, we learn about the godly soul, its powers, its garments, um, all the other stuff, klipa, how that interacts. Um, and then in chapters 9 through 12, we learned that there's this war and aftermath, um, and that if the godly soul wins the war, in other words, that the person's, the, the person's godly soul has completely taken over, then that would be called a tzaddik. We split, split that into two, whether the animal soul is merely being controlled and enslaved, or it's actually being transformed. Um, and then reverses with the if the animal soul has taken complete control, and that's evidenced by a willingness, a tolerance to sin, regardless of how often that sin is, but the godly soul may still be there just in an enslaved state, and that's evidenced by the desire to do mitzvahs, the success in doing shuv, or even just the regret of doing something wrong. Um, ultimately, though, the godly soul could be banished completely from the person's experience, um, not existentially, but from their experience, and that would be the complete Russia who has, who has complete evil within it. Um, and then we have the Baini, and the Baini is where the, the resolution is that no one is defeated, so everyone ends up just playing to their strengths. Um, and that's chapter 12. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start the next section, um, but I'm going to go back to chapter 12, because in chapter 12, the altar introduces the Baini. He gives us what I like to call the classic Baini. In other words, um, very often, in other words, in everything you have its kind of ideal form, the thing that really expresses what it is in its, in its, in its fullest sense, and then you have its extremities, like how, how far you could stretch it and still being what it is. And so really exploring the Bainini really begins in chapter 13. 12 is much more the, the place where the Bainini is introduced, and so it introduced kind of the classic sense. So what we have to do is we have to make it a little more clear what differentiates the Bainini from the Rasha and from the Tzadik. So I'm gonna go more or less in the order of the chapter. The first thing Alter Rebbe says is that the Bainini is someone who never sins. Emphasis on the word? Never. Never, okay? Now this is referring to a person's psychological state, meaning if you have sinned in the past, that doesn't preclude you from being a Bainini. And if you end up sinning in the future, it doesn't retroactively mean you weren't a Bainini. It means that a person's in a state that that state precludes sinning, period. However, the godly soul is not the only thing that is manifest. That, is, that only happens during special times, which he calls the times of prayer, the times of davening. Okay. In Chabad Hasidis, davening is not merely a ritual. Davening is, is referring back to what we discussed in chapter 3, using the intellectual faculties, Chachma, Bina, and Das of the godly soul, to directly engage with God's greatness and God's significance. And so during that time, the Bainani only experiences their godly soul. Similar to, but not identical with the Tzaddik. However, the, as soon as the Bainani leaves that contemplative state, which is called the after-davening, okay, 
they, they go back to experiencing the animal soul. So the classic bathing is going to have two states, during davening and after davening. Okay? During davening, there is a deep engagement in the, in the reality of God and his greatness and his significance, and a deep emotional experience of yearning, awe, subservience, some whatever one of those types of things. After davening, what there's what remains, and what remains is a kind of clarity, both about God and about oneself. Okay, I, I, I like to use this following analogy because certain things I spend more time, certain things less time. Um, if you have eaten foods or, or drinks, you know that you like them or don't like them, especially if it is something that you do regularly. So I know that I enjoy coffee. I do not need to actually, this coffee doesn't have milk right in it, but I, I, I don't need to know how much I'm going to enjoy it. I don't need to drink it to know how much I'm going to enjoy it because I have very clear recollection of my experience of drinking coffee without milk, instant coffee without milk, and how I react to that. Now, the further I am away from that experience mentally, right, the less clear it's going to be. So the idea is that during davening, what remains is the one who's achieved a kind of clarity about God and a clarity about themselves that remains even after a person leaves the state of the davening. So they're not having that intense emotional experience and their mind is not just fully aware of Hashem, but they are very, very clear about the fact that the most important thing to me, emphasis on the words to me, is my connection to Hashem. And therefore, this person would never sin because if it is clear to you that something is the most important thing to you, okay, in, in a very real way, you would never compromise that. Okay. One last thing. However, things which are not objective sins, but go back to the thing where your motivation matters, so permitted matters, there the baby has to do a lot of honest self-assessment to figure out, is this really moving me away from God or closer to God? So after davening, the Baini has this clarity about God and themselves and how that is the most important thing. They would never sin, but they do have to consider whether or not they should have um, food or buy clothing or things like that because are these things really being done in service of my connection to God or are they compromising? And that becomes situationally dependent, motivationally dependent, individually dependent. Okay. Um, and this extends even to thoughts. At the minute the Bainini is aware that a thought is incompatible with Hashem, they, they move their mind off of that thought completely. In other words, there's not even a dwelling on how I'm not supposed to think the thought. They just move on. Okay. And so really, this is what I want to emphasize, the real struggle of the classic Bainini is not in the not sinning, but is in the davening, the prayer, that creates this clarity, and therefore a classic Baini organizes their life around davening. That is the most important activity for them. And so this is where you get the classic idea of the Chabad Chassid who spends three, four, five hours in Shachris every single day, or maybe spends three or four hours once a week, and that like everything from his business to his family life has to work around his davening schedule, because that's where he creates the clarity and he needs to, and he needs to kind of refresh that before it fades away. Okay. So that's the kind of classic Baini that Alter introduces in chapter 12. Not a tzaddik, because 
they have to um, create that awareness in the davening, and then that awareness just allows them to um, live with integrity. It doesn't prevent them from experiencing the animal soul. But they're also not a Russia because they're living with this sense that sin and compromising relationship with God is completely out of the question. So they're neither a Russia nor a Tzad. Yes, you have a question. Um, so could you explain a little more? So you're saying in the same way that the closer you are to drinking coffee, the more you experience clarity about your life towards coffee. And similarly, the closer Bainini is to Dobbin, the more he experiences clarity about wanting to be close to Hashem. Because you, you always know you like, you always know you like coffee no matter how long ago you drink it. So what's that clarity so, that comes so, so, so I'm not going to elaborate too much. I'll just say this. It's not always true. For instance, as, you, as your life changes, you'll discover that that's not the case. Um, things that you liked when you were a kid, you may not like when you're an adult. Things you liked as a teenager. Um, the, the reason, very simply, is that, that um, the analogy is, only goes so far because coffee is a, is a, is a um, sensory experience. Food is a sensory experience. And this is a um, entirely mental experience entirely abstract um, and so a more a, a better analogy would be that if you have a good interaction um, with your parent then it's clear to you even after that interaction ends that how important a parent is to you in your life but as that experience fades away and proceeds into your long term memory the value of relating to your parent might be there but it is, doesn't have that power that actually influences your decision-making process on a moment-to-moment basis. Um, that would be a better analogy. Um, I wanted to like, make it a little clearer. Okay, so that's the classic vanity. In so chap- you would not be like, dependent on something like that to prove that? No, feel? no, 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 no. So then the altar moves on chapter um, 13, and what he does in chapter 13 is he basically explores the kind of two main issues about the Bainini. Number one, what are the extremes of the Bainini? In other words, how low can the Bainini sink and still be a Bainini? And how high can the Bainini reach and still be a Bainini? Like, what is really the boundary between Sadiq and Bainini and Russia and Bainini? And then he also discusses an idea about the integrity, the truth of the Bainini. We're gonna, I'm gonna spend a little, again, a little bit more time on, on um, all of these, some of the other things I'm gonna do a little bit faster. The lowest level of a Bainini is a Bainini who has not davened. Is a Bainini who actually feels genuinely conflicted, should I sin or should I not sin? But has the maturity to be honest with themselves. And in that seeking to be honest with themselves, God provides the clarity in their moment of need, right? This is the idea that God stands at this right side to, strength, to, to support the, 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 the impoverished one, right? So in this case, it's a combination of self-awareness, maturity, pausing before acting, humility, and having values that allows a person not to just be dictated by their animal soul and allows Hashem that window of opportunity to provide that clarity that makes them the Bainini. But this is very unstable. It's moment to moment. And so this Bainini really does experience the struggle, should I sin, should I not sin? 
Okay? The upper extreme of the Baini is someone who is so gifted that they are able to maintain that kind of contemplative state about being totally engaged with the greatness and reality and significance of Hashem, that even when they're involved in other activities, um, that's where, they're, that's where they, they put their minds so naturally and so effortlessly um, that they're either mentally engaged with God or they're channeling that into his service through Torah study. And so they never have the opportunity to experience their animal soul. Okay? But this is much like if you're watching you know, the nature channel, it doesn't mean all of the garbage isn't on the other channels, you just aren't flipping to them. It's still there. And so what we see is the lower end of the Bainini always retains this kind of safeguard against sin, that sin is never really an option. Although on the lower end of Bainini, it's because Hashem is assisting. And the upper end of the Bainini is that the animal soul is not really being affected. In fact, the Altar goes so far to say is that even a person who desires to close with Hashem all their life, and all they do is to channel that into Torah mitzvahs, that does not mean their animal soul is in any way subjugated. It might just might be um, repressed. Um, and in fact, it's slowly getting stronger because every time we eat, drink, and take care of ourselves, our animal soul is getting stronger. So your animal soul is actually at its weakest point the moment you're born. And it's just downhill from there as a general rule. Which, by the way, is an important observation that therefore Hasidim make it an emphasis of strengthening our connection to our godly soul over weakening the animal soul. I'm not saying there's no point in trying to weaken the animal soul, but that can't be your main strategy because, you know, it's a losing battle. The last thing is whether or not, and this goes back to the original question, that, that the whole idea is to explain how you can um, serve Hashem with your heart. And we have a problem because there seems to be a lack of what the altar calls emes, which will translate just literally as truth. Now, I want to explain what this means. If I want something, as part of a connection to Hashem, and I'm going to emphasize this from the religious perspective, as Al-Dab means it, then it needs to be true. What I mean to be true is, I don't mean, not, I don't mean that it shouldn't be um, um, delusional or false. I mean something deeper. If Hashem, if you're connecting to Hashem, you're going to have to connect to Him on His terms. And He is true. What do we mean by true? We mean He is everlasting. He is absolute. So if my feelings towards Hashem are really part of a connection to the divine, they have to have a quality of absoluteness. They have to have a quality of permanence. Which means something that I feel only when I put my mind to it doesn't seem to really have that. And so there seems to be the Al-Tareb is, 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 is not really giving us a solution. We are supposed to be able to serve Hashem with our hearts, the same way we serve Hashem with our actions. And yet with our hearts, there seems to be like we have to perform. And our performance is lacking this quality of emes. And the Al-Tareb solution is to say that, that the, this concept of emes is, is something that comes in, in degrees, that it permeates all levels. So you kind of think of it like a, a ray of light. The ray of light kind of goes on forever and ever and ever, but the further away, the dimmer it is. And the MS on the level of a Bainani is not the experience of the love or the awe or whatever it is, but it is the capacity to generate it. I'll explain to you what I mean very simply. What is the difference between a, um, a teacher 
and someone who gives a class on the human level. On the human level, the difference is that a teacher, whenever they decide to give a class, they can do so. Because they have a body of knowledge and a set of skills that enable them to, at will, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that a class can be produced like that, right? A class might have several stages in how it's produced, but they can at will produce a class. You can go to this person and say, I want you to teach a class on X, like fine, and they will do it. There are many people who can teach a class, but they have one class that for whatever, by divine providence reasons, they happen to be able to teach this one thing and like, that's it. Um, and if it, and that works, great, and if not, then they're stuck. You see the difference? The Bainani does not necessarily feel love and awe of Hashem at all times. But the Bainani is someone who loves Hashem with truth. Why? Because when the Bainani decides, now I'm going to feel love on the level which I can, the Bainani knows how to do it and can do it. And so it is something that, is a, that, has, that has this quality of truth because it is within their power and capacity at all times. They're realistically unable to do it at all times because they also have to go to work. So now we have a kind of a sense that there is a kind of depth to the Bainani, there's the parameters, there's the boundaries of the Bainani. Moving on now to chapter 14. Chapter 14, the altar is now going to take what we've learned about the Bainani um, and use that to start answering some of our questions. Okay. The first thing he does is he makes it very clear that the trait of the Bainani is something that is accessible to all people. Because ultimately what the Bainani is doing is setting aside how they feel For what is important. Like if you boil it down, that's what the Bainini is doing. The Bainini is saying, okay, there's how I feel, and how I feel will lead me go one way. But there's what's important to me, and that will lead me to go another way. And they use what's important to them to override what they feel in how they act, in how they speak, and how they think, and this is a very important emphasis, and even in how they continue to feel. Right? There's a notion of letting go of your mind and emotions, right? So the Bainani is somebody saying, because these feelings are motivating me to act, to speak, and to think, and to continue to be in a state of mind, which are contrary to the value of being connected to Hashem, I am going to set them aside and, and live according to that higher value. Because I really, truly, the thing that is most important to me, above all, is my connection to Hashem. That's the trait of the Bainani. And that's something that is accessible to all people. It doesn't make it easy, by the way. And it's something that you can do at all times. And when I say at all times, the way a pianist can play piano anytime they have a piano available. Meaning, if you've not trained yourself to do this, can you do this at all times? No. Um, if you don't have the requisite equipment, can you do it? No. What will be the requisite equipment? Yeah. Well, in this case, it would require a certain level of you know, emotional maturity, right? Someone who doesn't have emotional maturity and basic emotional regulation in life in general can't all of a sudden magically acquire when it comes to the service of God, right? Make sense? Okay, that's important. Now, the trait of the tzaddik, though, is very different because the trait of the tzaddik is someone who is feeling a constant feelings of, constant feelings of love and desire and closeness to Hashem, so much so that they find everything ungodly, everything that is klipa to be um, despicable, distasteful. And that's not something you can just volitionally decide to do. That's something that ultimately is a gift from God. 
And it's a gift in two respects. One, not every soul is, is capable of achieving this. Two, actually achieving these kinds of experiences themselves require God to reveal himself to you. Okay? And this is why Eov says, Barasa Tzadikim, you created the righteous. You created certain souls who have the capacity for these experiences. And the altar basically says this is like experiencing God Eden in the afterlife while still being physically alive. That's basically what a tzaddik is experiencing. So A, you have to be given a soul that has that capacity. And then B, God has to reveal himself to you in that way. Um, and so we now can understand why there's a double oath. We're, the, we're, we're expected to work on becoming a tzaddik, to be a tzaddik, as the first oath says. But that's not something we have complete control over. So we're given a second oath, not to be wicked. By not being a wicked, that means to at very least be a baini, because that's something we have full control over. Now, there's a problem, because we did, we, we, we did it swear to be a tzaddik, so we have to have some way of fulfilling our obligation. And the altar does not say, well, do your best, and, and, and that God, God, God counts that. He doesn't give you E for effort. What the altar says is, if you can't be a tzaddik, you can fake it. How does a tzaddik feel about ungodly things. Finds it disgusting, despicable, distasteful, right? Can you train yourself to find things that are ungodly, despicable, distasteful, and disgusting? Not necessarily for a godly reason, but for other reasons. Um, I'll try to use a few examples. Um, one is considering what happens to food. If you really re- meditate on, on what happens to food as part of eating it, um, it definitely has an effect on your emotional attachment to food. Women should be careful because you still do need to eat at the end of the day. Um, and then he has a similar thing um, regarding um, physical relations between men and women. If you think about that and you just remove the outer layer of skin and just think about what's going on, it's also kind of disgusting. So he gives those as examples of ways you can kind of change your emotional attachments to, to the physical and um, ungodly parts of life. And you can always think about God and how wonderful it is to be close to him if you're not experiencing it, right? But then he goes a step further and says there's actually a Kabbalistic concept called pregnancy or ibor, which is the idea, so just to be clear, pregnancy, for those of you who don't know, is where you have one human being inside another human being. Have you ever thought of it that way? That's what it is. It's weird. So what is Kabbalistic pregnancy? I'm going to get you guessed. Does anyone know what Kabbalistic pregnancy is? When you have, well, real pregnancy is one person living inside another person, right? Like literally. So what would be Kabbalistic pregnancy? A soul. A soul living inside another soul. And the way this works is that sometimes the soul of a tzaddik enters and lives inside the soul of a non-tzaddik, giving that non-tzaddik some of the tzaddik-like experiences. And then at that moment, you really are a tzaddik, not because you're a tzaddik, but because the tzaddik is kind of living inside of you. Of course, in order to do this, you have to make your life appealing to the tzaddik. So you might want to like act like you're a tzaddik, not just on the physical level, but on a psychological level, to make yourself as appealing to a tzaddik as this. Ooh, there's like another place my soul can express itself inside the soul of this other person. And so ultimately, you can become a tzaddik, at least temporarily, by having another tzaddik's experiences kind of flow into your soul. And so you can fulfill both oaths. You can fulfill the oath to be a tzaddik by mimicking a tzaddik and then ultimately having a tzaddik live within you. 
and the obligation to not be a rasha, not be wicked, by making sure that you maintain that clarity of the bane and the at all times. Yes? Is this what's happening when people um, I th- So there is that idea that you're fusing your souls. I believe that is a different idea. I am not enough vocabulary to speak with expertise, but from my limited understanding, the notion of Ibor in this context, there's other kinds of Ibor as well, which are negative. This kind of Ibor and the, 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 that is a different thing. That's much more like your soul is like the branch of the Sadiq soul. It's, slightly, it's a different idea. As far as I know, but I could be wrong on that. <coughs> okay. It doesn't matter because it's souls. I mean, that I know for sure. It really doesn't matter. It really, really doesn't matter. Yeah, so there could be a living tzaddik and part of his soul is inside your soul. But you would feel like a tzaddik. So, you know, you would know if it's happening. Okay, now we move on to chapter 15. In chapter 15, what the Alter Rebbe does, and this is how I like to frame chapter 15, there is the letter of the Bainani and the spirit of the Bainani. Letter? Like the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. There's the letter of the Bainani and the spirit of the Bainani. There's being a Bainani in kind of technical terms, and there's being a Bainani in terms of what it's really all about. And the altar uses the following verse. The whole chapter is kind of an explanation of the following verse from Psalms. Um, I believe it's from Psalms. Shaft and Ve'isim, you should um, reflect and, and, and see um, the difference between a tzaddik and a rasha, a, a righteous person, wicked person, in between um, one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And the Alter Rebbe adopting the kind of basic premise that when you have repetition in biblical verses, even though on a very simple level it means it's just a poetic way of conveying the idea, on a deeper level they're really not, they're really two distinct ideas. So the tzaddik is not a synonym for the one who serves God. And that would make sense because the tzaddik is someone who has achieved a certain kind of state of being. And now there's an example, for instance, the word eved, a slave, or melech, a king, or chacham, a wise person, right? They've become something. Whereas the other word is oivid, one who is doing something. And that's really the difference between a tzaddik and a bainani. A tzaddik has achieved a state, whereas the bainani is in the process of doing something to maintain clarity. So the tzaddik and the one who serves God are not the same. And then he goes further and says, but... Within the Bainani, you can distinguish between one who serves God and one who doesn't because you could technically be a Bainani without actually serving Hashem. Because service ultimately is about putting in effort. It's about you're making a conscious decision to grow and to change and to do things differently than is your kind of comfort zone. And you could be a Bainani by default. And the way this would work is, A, um, if you are a man, because men have an obligation to study Torah at every available opportunity. If you are a man and are, ex- and are by nature or by training um, very introverted and introspective, so studying Torah for long periods of times is something you'd not find difficult and you would actually find enjoyable. Number two, a person's sexual drives are basically at zero, so all the temptations in those areas basically go away. And three, the person is, is very low on on sensory experience, meaning, um, and you'll see this, some people, they really can taste the difference in food, they taste differently, they can feel things, Um, and so, and then some people are not like that. Um, 
if your if your if your sensitivity to physical sensation is on a very low level, right? Then food is food, you know, and a, and and a, and a place to put your head is a place to put your head, which means you don't end up feeling so tempted to pursue material things because as long as you have your basic needs met, it more or less feels the same to you. If you have a person like that, who by nature has a godly soul because they're a Jew and they've grown up, the altar doesn't say this there, but he does say it in the Chassid discourse, and they've grown up in a religious environment, then by default, what kind of life will they live? One where sin is out of the question because why would you sin if it's not in your nature? But is there any real service of God there? Right. They're not overcoming their evil inclination, their animal soul. They're not the, the natural proclivity to God that's due to the godly soul, something they didn't do create for themselves. Right? And they're just kind of they're kind of just operating from a place of um, what's normal and comfortable for them. Yes? Um, when you talked about the lower and higher level of dignity in chapter 13, is that similar to describing here or is that in terms of Relation to how no, that's not a relation because that person, that person could be putting a lot of effort to maintaining that and, 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 and achieving higher levels of that. But someone who serves God is either a someone who is pushing their awareness of God beyond what they're naturally aware of, to, and that drives their mitzvah observance beyond their comfort zone. Or alternatively, they're not one of these people whose animal soul is so pathetic and they really do need to work to maintain an awareness of the importance of being connected to Hashem. But the basic idea is that the never sinning part is the technical part of the Bainini. The spirit of the Bainini is that one is prioritizing through hard work their awareness of Hashem, by, whether it's innately through their soul or through really comprehending His greatness in order to um, overcome their evil inclination and their animal soul, which then immediately blends into the next chapter, chapter 16, where the altar says that's the general principle of the Baini, is that the Baini is using the godly soul's ability in the mind to override their natural tendencies of the animal soul and the heart. Okay. Um, and then he then takes this further. If that's really the case, there's another general principle, which is that the emotions that a Baini um, creates are really what, what's really critical is that they're that they're created from based on an awareness of God and they really lead to things which connect them to God Torah and mitzvahs. The actual level of the emotional experience itself is really not so important. Let me explain. Um, there is a interesting question. If I were to ask you, what is an emotion? So we'll use just the example of love for right now. What is love as an emotion? So I'm not asking about love specifically, but I just want to make it concrete. What is, and you would have a hard time answering this. Why would you have a hard time answering it? The first reason is you actually need a place, point of reference. If you're a behaviorist, you know, your understanding is that the only real stuff is what people actually do, right? then love is simply the thing that we, is behind the curtain of certain behaviors. So for instance, there's certain kinds of behaviors that you're, that you're motivated to do, such as sharing, such as being with a person, right? And when you're motivated to do all of those things, they kind of cluster together, so we think of that as one kind of drive, and we'll call that love, right? That's one way of thinking of it, right? 
You could think about it the opposite way that love is a certain kind of experience you're having, right? There's what it feels like subjectively to feel love, regardless of where it's coming from what you're doing. You could think of love physiologically, like how does love actually change the body, right? There's many different ways of answering that question. And Althrop's point is that, be, that really what the Bainini is guaranteed to be capable of producing are emotions which are rooted in an awareness of God and motivate their behavior. In terms of how intense the actual experience is, there's no guarantee that you're going to be anything more than just a mild, a mild sense of deep personal conviction and investment, which is still emotional. Okay. And the altar was like, that's okay. Like, whatever, whatever role emotions play in God's grand plan is not going to be compromised because you're not having those passionate experience. Which then leads us to chapter 17, which we now can answer... How is the emotions close to us? Well, because we have a godly soul, which is capable of contemplating God's greatness, producing at least emotions which motivate mitzvahs, as the verse says, that it's It's in your heart to do it. Because we are not guaranteed, we are not promised that we have the capacity to transform our emotional life to that of a tzaddik. That's something some people merit, some people do not. You have to work for it, but you may, not, you may or may not end up getting there. And maybe you're not capable of getting there to begin with. But you are for sure capable of getting to this kind of an experience where your awareness of Hashem creates enough of an emotional drive that doing mitzvahs and sinning are absolutes by you. And that allows you to overcome and override whatever other tendencies and natures you might have. And that's for everybody, except for sinners. Someone who is a genuine sinner cannot do this. Because when a person um, is a genuine sinner, Hashem punishes them by making it that they have no control over their emotions at all when it comes to their religious life. They still have the free will to comply with halacha, but they no longer have the ability to arouse any feelings whatsoever towards Hashem until they do tshuva. Is that a complete is So there's some debate as to what this means. Um, the Rebbe goes back and forth a little bit on it. It seems to be even not a complete Russia because it's more about the choice. Once a person has, um, the Reb Alter uses the word Russia the MS. So once that, once, that, once that being a sinner is something that is not just something that you did or something you failed in, but has become the space that you are living from, you have come to a place where the fact that God is not number one priority is fine. That's okay. I'm okay. I can live the rest of my life that way. As long as that's the case, everything Altarus says is not on the table. Um, and Altarus says, well, what about the verse? Versus the verse wasn't talking to sinners because the verse talks to like righteous people. I don't mean like Tzad, but like Jews who take God seriously. Um, and that's how this first 17 chapters play out. Okay. Now, there is another limitation, which is where we said move on to chapter 18, which is you need to be very capable intellectually to do what we just discussed, right? You need to be, have the ability to take abstract notions of God's greatness and his reality and make them come alive in your mind. And what if you can't do that? Then everything that we said is just not gonna work, right? And so this is what the observes that the verse didn't just say karev, it's, it's close, it's accessible, it's karev ma'od. What does ma'od mean? Very. Very. 
which means that it should be available to every Jew who takes God seriously. So there are all the Rebbe approaches with a second approach. This approach is something called the shorter approach because it, it's, it has less restrictions on it. Um, and this approach is centered around the idea that we have an innate love for Hashem, which is where we actually we're studying time. So I'm going to outline, this is chapters 18 through 25, and this is going to be the second approach which is going to be very accessible, very close, meaning it doesn't even have the prerequisite of being able to contemplate God's greatness, which is, again, an intellectually demanding task. It's going to be much more accessible. Okay. The first two chapters explore the innate love of Hashem that every Jew has by virtue of the godly soul. That's chapters 18 and 19. Chapters 20 and 21 are the unity of God. What's chapter 18 and 19? The innate love that we have. Then chapter 23 is going, sorry, tw- chapter 22 is going to be about Klippa. Chapter 23 is going to be about Torah and mitzvahs. Chapter 24 will be about sin. And chapter 25 will be showing us how to bring all this together so that we can serve Hashem with our heart, even without contemplating His greatness. Okay. So now, the innate love that every Jew has, um, the Alter Rebbe explores four different dimensions of this love. Number one, that this love is inherited because in merit of the forefathers, every Jew inherits a godly soul. What's the key thing about inheritance? You don't have to earn it, and consequently, you don't, aren't able to lose it. So because we all inherited godly souls as a reward for the service of the patriarchs and matriarchs. Number two, the source of this love comes directly from Chachmah. As we said earlier, Chachmah is our, the soul's capacity to be aware of Hashem, to be open to Hashem. Previously, we said the love comes from the union of Chachmah and Bina, right? Mm-hmm. Chachmah provides an awareness that Bina then, then turns into something that is tangible enough for us to relate to emotionally, just like the relationship between a husband and wife producing a child. Here we're saying, though, there's a higher level of Chachmah, a higher level of awareness that every soul has that just itself produces love. It's also the source of the innate faith. And this love is what underlies the Jewish tendency towards martyrdom. In chapter 19, he addresses another two points, that one, this love doesn't seek out closeness with Hashem as love usually seeks out, but rather seeks out to be totally subsumed within Hashem to the point that you lose your identity completely. And the analogy for this is the way a flame seeks to reunite with its source and thus be extinguished. And finally, that, and this is the last part, is that this love to be subsumed within God has a corollary of fear, which is that the soul has no capacity, no tolerance for the denial of God, which is idolatry. And that's really what is being motivating martyrdom. Okay, so that's chapters 18 and 19. Okay, the, the 
love being inherited and the source being in Chachmah is in chapter 18. And the fact that the love seeks to be completely subsumed within Hashem and also means the soul has a zero tolerance for anything which denies Hashem is in chapter 19. So now, what the Al-Tarebbe wants to do is he wants to basically frame that every mitzvah is really an act of being subsumed within God and every sin is an act of denying God in the most absolute sense. In order to do that, he first wants to explore um, what really is the truth of Hashem? What is his unity? Which was chapters 20, 21. Someone was raising their hand. Was it me? Okay. Well, no, I, I did raise my hand. Okay. I do have a question, but then I thought, um, what's the difference between wanting to be close to someone and wanting to be subsumed? In when you're close, you retain your sense of your own being as a distinct entity. So there's you, there's your beloved, and there's the relationship that binds you together. Um, if you become subsumed, you dissolve away. There is only the beloved. Do we experience that interpersonally? Yes. With um, not completely. But there are experiences that are like that that goes back to a question answered and questions answered about um, there's, a, there's a natural human spiritual drive that you find in many religious traditions that it's a psychological state you can, you can enter it. But I don't want to go more, more into it. Thank you. Okay, what is Hashem's unity? So the basic assertion is that um, Hashem's unity, and this I'm going to spend some more time on because this is something that often gets overlooked. Okay, Bef- this is a chapter twenty, and then when we move to an outside point. Before I go into this, I do want to say something very important. Chassidus is hard. Okay, I'm not going to lie. The hard part of Chassidus is, in terms of the learning, is not the stuff we've been learning in Tanya class. Why not? Because this is supposed to be accessible. Right, because the stuff we've been learning in Tanya class is about us. It's about understanding us within the framework of the light of what sheds on Judaism and life, etc. Okay. Um, but when Chassidus turns its attention to theology, theology in general is hard, and Chassidus is exceptionally hard. One of the ways that people deal with hard things is they oversimplify them. So everything becomes the same. This is true even on the, the so-called easier stuff of Chassidus when we're dealing with our own self. People over by here, it gets even more. So if I were to ask you, um, what is the unity of Hashem according to Chassidus? Most people would say, oh, that, that, that everything is God or only God exists or something like that, right? Um, and then you start asking questions and A, it's very clear that they don't realize that there are many different ideas of the unity of God in Chassidus and B, their understanding of it is often heretical. This is my hat. Okay, I'm going to be very blunt. My hat is not God. My hat is not a piece of God or a part of God. In other words, God is not a whole of which this is a subcomponent. Okay, because before we get to Chassidus, the basic halachic definition of God's unity is that there is only one God who is not made up of components, parts, or aspects. So if you believe that God has come the totality of everything and this is a part of that, you are a heretic, you are in violation of Jewish law. Now, maybe you are really not a heretic because you didn't know any better and blah, 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 but, you know. So whatever chazidus means, it does not mean my hat is God or a, like, subcomponent of God or something silly like that. And we're going to only do what it says in chapters 20 and 21. For instance, if you study Shari Yichud Vemun, the second section of Tanya, there's an entirely different explanation of the unity of God there. Entirely different. Um, and it is worth 
examining the differences and why the Alter Rebbe uses different explanations in different places. Chapter 20 is the following. God's unity is that God is the only thing that exists in the sense that just as God was alone prior to his creation of the world, he is, remains equally alone after his creation of the world. Okay? So this is something we need to stop and absorb. In what sense do we mean that God is the only thing that exists? That's in reference to equality of God, his aloneness. Okay, what does aloneness mean? Which, by the way, is different than loneliness. What does aloneness mean? He's the only entity. He's the only one, right? Now, lonely is when you feel like you're the only one and it bothers you. God is not lonely, okay? Even according to Chassidus, God is not lonely, but he is alone. Before he created anything, he was alone. And that quality of aloneness has remained unchanged completely. How so? Well, in order to compromise your aloneness, whatever else is there has to have some significance to you. That is the basic idea. So for instance, if I'm sitting in a room by myself and a spider comes into the room, I will probably consider myself just as alone as I was before because the spider is not significant on the human level. And this is what we find that when Adam was created, he was created a single being and God said it's not good for him to be alone. And you're like, what do you mean? There's trees, there was animals, there's a bunch of stuff, right? But there was no one who was on his level. No one who has what's called chashivas significance. Now, this is not entirely true because that's only talking about on the level of Adam's humanity. If we move down to Adam being a biological creature or a physical entity, well, in that case, he clearly wasn't alone, right? If he walked into a wall, it would hurt, right? Does this make sense? So, God is unchanged in the sense of his aloneness. Aloneness is compromised when something else of significance enters into your space. Good? So... The author says, well, yeah, God created the world, but the world has how much significance? Zero. So the creation of the world does not compromise his aloneness. Is that asserting that the world is itself a godly thing? No, it's just saying that the world is... Not on God's level. So much it's not on God's level that... There's no sign we can't even be like company or... Right. So whether it's there or not is completely irrelevant, so his aloneness is uncompromised. How irrelevant is the existence of the world? Well, the Alter Rebbe fleshes this out. And he says like this. God created the world with his speech. Okay? And so, therefore, the world can be no more significant than the speech. Does that make sense? In other words, the, the layer or level of God's involvement in the act of creation is his utterances. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the world has no more significance than the utterances themselves. So if we just know how insignificant God's speech is to God, then it follows the world can be more significant than that. He says, okay, well, and by the way, you need to understand here, I'm going quickly, and there's a lot of follow-up questions that you can ask, and I'm just going to ignore them. I'm just going to go through what it says there. If you want to ask me tomorrow question and answer, that's fine. But no follow-up questions on this. Just if you didn't understand the basic point that I said, then stop me. He says, okay, well, speech is producing audible language. That's what speech is, right? Your soul's capacity to produce audible language is infinite. In other words, you, have an, you, there, you don't run out of words. There's no such concept of running out of words. The soul can produce an infinite number of words. So, all of us who know basic math understand that if you have the infinite capacity to produce something 
any finite use of that is irrelevant, right? If you have an infinite amount of money, doesn't matter how much money you spend, it's irrelevant. So it doesn't matter how many words you say if you have an infinite capacity to speak. So since God only said what is ultimately in some level really, it says something really that it's really for God, one word, one word compared to the capacity to speak infinite words is irrelevant. But then you go deeper. Speaking words, making language audible is simply externalizing the language that was already in your thoughts. So there really is nothing new being added. Right? You are never going to say something that didn't already exist in, in thought. I mean, the la- actual language. You cannot ar- articulate words or co- sentences that did not pre-exist in your thought. Whether you were consciously aware of that thought's a different discussion. Does that make sense? So whatever this layer of God's energy called his speech, it not only is it insignificant to the capacity to produce it, it's also, ins- it's also re- insignificant intrinsically because the letters of God's speech are just externalizing and copying and pasting the letters of his thought. But then you go deeper. Um, as someone I taught Tanya to um, said, you don't love in French, which means like this, thought is in language, but your actual experiences of the soul are not linguistic. You don't love in French, you don't do philosophy in German, um, you don't make you know, really you know, banal comments you don't really experience like banal things in English. You experience things in a way that's not linguistic, right? So it's true that the way you communicate to yourself has a language, but the actual experiences that you're trying to communicate yourself in your thought or to others in your speech, those experiences are really beyond language altogether. That's why language is like a double-edged sword. Without it, you can't really communicate, but with it, you end up corrupting what you're trying to convey. This is, by the way, why song is a much more profound medium for communicating emotion. And there really is no equivalent when you talk about ideas. You can't just like link your ideas together, unfortunately. So the altruist says like this, well, if a person was aware of a food, that it was tasty, and they developed a desire to eat that food, they were aware of a particular wisdom, and they felt the desire to acquire that wisdom, those are all pre-linguistic experiences. The addition of language does not enhance those experiences in any way. Then, our, then externalizing that language in speech certainly isn't changing anything. And so the kind of raw level of God's being is much more like the pre-linguistic experiences. And the energy in creation is the actual articulated language, which is insignificant both in the sense that God could produce an infinite amount of it. It's just externalizing what was already there. And it's in this form which is completely irrelevant to the underlying depth of God's being. So if God creates a world using his speech whether that world is or is not in existence is kind of irrelevant. Now, I heard from a mishpia with a nice long beard, um, white beard, from one of the ones who was born in Russia. He says, if you want to understand this, you look at your standard Orthodox Jude davening shacharis. When you're davening shacharis, what's the standard Orthodox Jew doing? They're saying words, right? But how significant is the utterance of those words? in the life of that person. Right? Minus the halakhic obligation to utter the words is like, you know, if you did, you didn't, it's like it doesn't really make a difference to the person because... So that was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's nonetheless... So therefore, the, wor- the existence of everything, everything is irrelevant to God. Not that 
it doesn't exist in some sort of technical sense, but it has no, and there's a fancy term for this in philosophy, no ontological status. It's there, but the fact that it's there is meaningless. But then the Altar in chapter 21 goes a step further. Because something can be meaningless for one person, but meaningful for another, another right? Because there's this notion of different points of view, different reference frames, different perspectives, correct? In fact, that's what speaking is. When you externalize your speech, you are taking something that was originally housed within your own psyche and you're putting it to the space beyond yourself. So don't think of this physically for a second, just think of this mentally. What am I doing when I'm talking to you right now? I am trying to get something out of my psyche and into your psyche. And your psyche, for our purposes, is defined where beyond my psyche. Right? There's a horizon between my psyche and your psyche. If it was all in my psyche, there's no need to speak. I could just think. So the very fact that Hashem is speaking, that seems to indicate that it's going beyond him. And that and beyond space, and that space that's beyond Hashem, his words would have significance, just like my words are having significance to help you understand, right? Except there is no such thing as beyond Hashem. And if there's no such thing as beyond Hashem, then Hashem's not really speaking, is he? No. In other words, we only mean speaking in a very limited sense. Just like speech has effects that thought does not, so to the level of God's speech has an effect that thought does not. In other words, if God were just to think the existence of the world, the world would not exist in the same way that it exists when God speaks it. But he's not really speaking, because real speaking means taking something out of your psyche and entering it into the realm of the other, the beyond self. But there is no such thing as a beyond self for Hashem. So he's just moving from one kind of revelation to another kind of revelation where the very act of revelation is intrinsically insignificant. So there's only really one point of view, which is whose point of view? His. Which means if you believe that the creation of the world is significant, what do we call people who believe things that are false? No. Just no in regular life. What? No. If you believe things that are false, you're mistaken, right? If you insist on believing things that are false and living your life in accordance with them, right? Even when others are trying to tell you that it's not, then we start to call you delusional, right? No. So from the Hasidic perspective, anytime you place significance on anything other than God, including yourself, you are clearly mistaken. And if you insist on doing that, even after being told otherwise, you are suffering from a very severe religious delusion, which you might be responsible for fixing. Okay. Now, chapter 20... Two goes on to say, okay, but there is a reason why we say that God speaks because speaking means that it goes outside of yourself. And Hashem does hide the fact that there is no thing beyond himself. And so God creates the reality of things being outside of himself and that's how Klippa comes into existence. Okay, this creates a very, very interesting um, metaphysical question. If God creates, if, there, if there's nothing beyond Hashem and God creates within himself a sense of being outside of himself, is it really outside of himself? I want you to think about that for a moment. There's nothing beyond Hashem and within, him, within himself he creates a reality of being outside of himself. Is that outside of himself really outside of himself? If you say no, then you're denying God's creative ability. That's not Hasidus, by the way. That is how Chaim Velazhener, who's an amazing tzaddik, dealt with Hasidic ideas 
that he encountered, or seeming that's what he did. And he made this whole, to matters whose perspective you're looking at, that, that language never shows up in Chassidus once. I don't know if there's a... No, serious question. If God creates, there's no beyond God. That's, a, that's, a, that's an impossibility. If God creates within himself a sense of beyond himself, and you say that's not real, then you're limiting God's creative ability, right? So is there a beyond himself? Is there, is there a beyond Hashem so that this, something can exist outside of him, external to him, and therefore have significance in it of its own right? So then is it really outside of him? And the answer to this is that sometimes the question is phrased wrong. This is like the journalist who asks the politician, when are you going to stop embezzling money? Right? The, journal, the politician can't really answer that question without making himself look bad, right? Because if they say, I'm not going to stop, so you're going to continue embezzling. And if you're going to say, um, tomorrow, then you're admitting to have embezzled until now, right? The question is framed in such a way that it prevents the friends certain answers. And what I did is I created a binary. I created that you can only, it has to either be one or the other. Right. And the answer is it is both. And this is a deep mystical idea and we're not going to worry too much about it. Now, what is important to know, this both is problematic for who? Us or God? Right. God has no problem with the both. So this idea that it's outside him but it's not outside of him, like it's not really so contradictory for him, but it is kind of messes with our minds. Um, I have an analogy for this, which is reworking of an analogy of the Rebbe Rishab. I use this analogy because it's easier just to say quickly without going... The Rebbe Rishab's analogy is, more, is better and more profound and more precise. Uh, mine's just better if you want to just say it and move on. A trick question is only a trick for who? Person being the person being questioned. Yes? No. It's a trick for both, but it only tricks one of them. When you ask a trick question, as I just did... You have to understand that it's a trick. It has to be a trick also in your mind. You're just not being tricked by the trick. <laughs> it's a trick to both of you, but it's only tricking one of you. Ponder that for a while. Where, where does Rebbe Shachar come from? He talks about the uh, idea of and uh, of, of, but this. So, do thing is. So, so in some sense, there really is an outside perspective that can place significance on things other than God. But that outside perspective isn't really outside. And this all comes from Hashem, so to speak, hiding his face, which is going to be an important idea moving forward. So in as much as Hashem is revealing his face, the trick question isn't tricking anybody. But in as much as Hashem is hiding his face, the trick question is tricking things. And now this sets us up to understand what mitzvahs are. Mitzvahs are where Hashem is not hiding his face. In other words, in the act of doing a mitzvah, this sets us up now for, this is, now we're in, in, in chapter 23. In the act of doing a mitzvah, and especially studying Torah, I'm not going to go into why it's especially, um, but in the act of doing a mitzvah, and especially in the study of Torah, Hashem is not hiding his face. And so if he's not hiding his face, then the truth is there's no outside perspective. The only perspective is his. And in his perspective, the world is created from something which is insignificant, which means it objectively insignificant, which means God remains alone. And so God is sharing his aloneness with you when you study Torah and when you do mitzvahs. Now, remember, what does the soul want with its innate love? 
And if Hashem showers his aloneness upon your soul, what happens to the soul? Well, if what happens would the soul remain a distinct entity if God if it senses God's aloneness? Mm. No. So in the soul, in doing the mitzvah, the soul dissolves away and gets what it wants, so to speak. Mm. Now I'll move to chapter twenty-four. What happens when you sin, though? What are you drawing onto yourself? You're drawing onto yourself the energy of the klipa, the energy of that which sees itself as outside of God and therefore is significant on its, at least on its own terms. And the altar of emphasizes that God's doing is just to create the sense that outside of God, things have their own significance. And this is the basic idea of idolatry. It's not denying God's existence. It's denying God's absoluteness. Right? God, from his perspective, I might be insignificant, but from my perspective, I count for something. And therefore, in my perspective, you know, I might be obedient to God, I might defer to God because I don't want to mess with the more powerful being, but ultimately, you know, I matter. That's the essence of, of, of idolatry, right? That's the, the being who is being tricked by the trick question. And that is what you are drawing onto your soul at the moment of sin. Now, that means every sin is in fact an act of idolatry. Maybe not halachically, but conceptually. And then the altar goes further. But if you sin in violation of God's command, you're actually worse. Because as much as you might think that you're important, you don't mess with those that you feel more powerful than you. But if you are going to transgress God's will, and this is again, we're referring to, you know, just to intentional sins, that means you are actually denying God's very existence as a higher power. So in fact, what is worse, the klipa that God creates or the Jew who is sinning? That's right. Which means if you realize that, your godly soul's intolerance for anything that denies God should kick in more in the act of sin than just encountering the impurity of idolatry conceptually. Now, this is only at the moment of sin. In this sense, all sins are equally bad because all sins are a total denial of not just Hashem's unity, but of Hashem himself, his very existence. Just like all mitzvahs are really the same, there are Hashem revealing, showing his face, all mitzvahs are causing Hashem to completely hide his face. Afterwards, there's variations as to how, what is the after effect of the sin. But at the moment of sin, it doesn't matter whether you are drinking without making the blessing beforehand, um, or putting on your left shoe before your right shoe, um, or taking you know, um, baptism. It's all the same. At the moment of sin, your soul is dead. Your soul has touched the death and has become consumed by it. The question is what happens to the soul afterwards. For more serious sins, the soul does not recover without tshuva. For less serious sins, the soul will recover afterwards with tshuva. It will just be scarred. So if you eat pork, your soul will bounce back. If you... Um, don't observe the laws of mikvah, your soul will not bounce back without explicit shufa. Okay. The last thing he says in chapter 24, if it wasn't bad enough, there is an aspect of your soul, though, um, that always remains connected to Hashem. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's bad. <laughs> Do you know why? Because if 
this sin is a place of ultimate death, right? And remember, I discussed how like death is like disgusting. So where are you dragging God when you sin? So the vivid analogy of this taken from classical Kabbalah is that at the moment of sin, you are taking the head of the king and shoving it into a used toilet that has not been flushed. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that you're touching idolatry and bringing it upon yourself. It's not just that you're denying God's existence. You're actually drawing God himself into a place of death and disgust. What if my left shoe on instead of my right Once you know that that's the halacha and you ignore it, yes. <laughs> yep. But, you know, Tanya, it's an uplifting book that makes you feel good about how, you know. In this context, it's meant to make the sin worse. You could take that idea and put it in other contexts, but then right. you wouldn't be learning chapter 24. So now it's like, it turns out that every mitzvah is like the ultimate affirmation of God's unity, regardless of whatever you're doing in the mitzvah. And every sin is the, is the worst transgression against God's unity, the worst violation of God's unity imaginable. It, it's worse than, than, than the existence of idolatry itself. And that's once you know it's right. Sin. That right. So the the impurity in the sin, that energy is there regardless. But the notion that it's worse is only when you're transgressing. Yeah. When so if you, so their intentionally matters. Yeah. In general, the altar was more focused on intentional sins as a general rule because that's really what you can control, and it's ultimately meant to be a guidebook. So um, why possibly would your soul, as we've already discussed in chapter 19, who has zero tolerance for idolatry, allow you to sin, right? Shouldn't you like your martyrdom thing kick in? And the answer to that is that we have what's called the spirit of folly, which numbs our sensitivity and also deludes us into thinking we have not compromised our relationship with Hashem. So two things. One, we become numb to what is happening or how much we love God. And two, we ra- we're able to rationalize that we're not really compromising relationship with God. Which now moves us on to chapter 25. This spirit of folly is really powerless over your conscious choice. In other words, like this. The spirit of folly works or has power over a person. This is the idea of chapter 25. Only in as much as the person allows it to have power over them. Um, the minute you basically call its bluff, it goes away. Does it mean it goes away forever? No. So if you are faced with the temptation to compromise your Jewish practice, and you say, wait a minute, the fact that that seems like a reasonable option is because I'm deluding myself and I choose not to delude myself. And why would I delude myself about the truth of who I am, the truth of God, the truth of my soul, the truth of this behavior? The minute you approach that in an honest way, what happens to that sense that that was a viable option? It disappears. And now you're being motivated to do Torah mitzvahs from a place of love and fear. It may not be a very powerful feeling. And then, just one second, the altar says, really, why wait? Why wait to the moment of crisis? Maybe you should like make that a regular practice to reflect upon God's unity, your innate devotion to it, and live with integrity based on that at all times. And then you would be abandoning, wouldn't you? and you would be motivated by a love and fear of God that maybe is not very viscerally felt, but is extremely potent. And this, in fact, the altar explains what the mitzvah of reciting the Shema morning and evening is ultimately about. And that that should become your constant point of reference in life. 
by reflecting on these things every morning and every evening, and then keep being mindful of it throughout the day, you can live with integrity that even though you don't feel the urge for martyrdom, you know that really every choice regarding Torah and mitzvahs really is a choice that boils down to affirming God's unity or denying it the same way, the same way you have a choice of martyrdom. Yeah. It's a complicated thing. For our purposes, let's say the Yetzirah is the thing that, makes, that, that tries to persuade you to do it, and the Ruach Shtos is what makes it seem like it's a viable option. So you can't get rid of your Yetzirah so easily. You really can get rid of your Ruach Shtos easily. By easily, I mean once you make the decision. Um, I will give you a, a, a tangible example. Um, has anyone ever done something which is psychologically difficult, but then really easy, like a trust fall, or going into like a really, or, or, or a cliff jumping, or going into a really hot or really cold mikvah bath, right? Anything like that. Um, you can stand there from today till tomorrow and like try to convince yourself and talk mm-hmm. yourself into it, or you can just say like, the only thing that's making this hard is that I'm telling myself that it's hard, and then you just do it, and it turns out no. that's what this is like. But you have to train yourself to see your entire life from this perspective, so that becomes this is becomes the place you're operating from. Is your just always the prerequisite to the Yitzhak? It's the prerequisite to sin. Sin never seems legitimate, like a legitimate option if you don't have a Roshdos. And now we have answered not just how it's close, but very close. Not just Kariv, but Kariv Ma'od. Notice again the emphasis is on emotions that lead to the decisions to invest in our Judaism, not an intense emotional experience per se. Okay, what comes next um, is that going to be there's going to be twenty five to thirty four, which is a detour about simcha joy, which has a detour within it about the love of your fellow Jew, and then he's going to then revisit the question of the emphasis on the actual doing of mitzvahs, rather than the emotions themselves. So we've we've addressed the question of the emotions by framing the emotions as playing an adjunct role to the mitzvahs, and you have to understand that because otherwise we're going to have it really fleshed out and really understand what was going on. So there's a, in a sense, we've finished, um, the, you know, the first core part of the time. Good? Does this make sense? The flow of ideas is coherent? It is not random. I don't believe so. I can tell you, are you going to be here tomorrow? I teach tomorrow questions and answers. It's not open to you. Uh, it's not open to you. Uh, okay. Fine. So I'll briefly answer it right now. Um, Shaykh of Amuna is dealing with the question of the question of the upper and lower unity. The idea is that the there's two truths about God's relationship with the world. One is that Intrinsically, the, the world gains its existence from um, God's desire to be king. And in as much as that is the case, the world has significance, but is not separate from Hashem. On the other hand, the truth of Hashem is such that the world is insignificant. But on that level... Um, the world really exists in kind of a like conceptually distinct space from Hashem. 
if you can bring these two, truth, two truths of Hashem together, you have a unity. And if those two truths can be brought together, they can be brought together in two ways. Where one, if you kind of think of it, one could be hiding behind the other, or one could be subsuming the other. So if the truth that the world is, that everything is intrinsically insignificant to Hashem is hiding behind Hashem's rulership, then you have the insignificance of the world is hiding behind the world not being separate from Him. And that's called the lower unity. Or you could have the world is, everything is insignificant to Hashem, is subsuming God's being um, king and, and the world not being separate from him. So it's a much more complex idea, and it's all centered around understanding, in Kabbalistic terms, the relationship of the sphere of Malchus with the other spheres. Is the sphere of Malchus hiding the other spheres within it? That would be the lower unity. Or is the sphere of Malchus being swallowed up by the spheres above it? That would be the higher unity. But to get to that place, you first have to kind of like reduce the world to nothing other than God's attribute of Malchus. And there's a bunch of steps along that way. None of that really has anything to do with the centrality of idolatry and God's unity as, in the context of the mitzvahs. It has to do with more the sense of just kind of the fundamental that Hashem is the only thing in any sense of looking at it. So, so it's not necessary. Well, the altar actually frames it as that. The altar frames it that this is that what he says in Shachavim is actually a pre. Is, he frames it as like like, like the basic fundamental thing. Because when you learn Shachavim basically all of everything gets reduced into how different manifestations of godliness interact with other manifestations of godliness, and that's all of reality. And if that's your basic point of view about what reality really is, then you're very god oriented, and so you have a basis for everything else. Whereas in, in, in the time that we're dealing with is we're already, we're already kind of presuming a God-centered focus and now dealing with how you navigate with that on a human level. So in a certain sense... Why do you think the altar switched it? They say because the altar, the altar actually wrote it, and it seems like he wrote it in the other order and published it. It seems like the altar realized that most people start with what is practically relevant to them and then come to realize, be interested in the conceptual stuff. But um, there is uh, something called the Encyclopedia of Chassidus in Hebrew. It's called Sefer Erechim. It's an encyclopedia. How big is an encyclopedia? Large. So they just published volume nine. Oh. <laughs> they skipped the fifth volume, by the way. The volume is not published. The ninth volume has the entry Achdus Hashem, the unity of Hashem. That starts Aleph, by the way. It's in Hebrew encyclopedia. Part one. Oh. Uh, Two. Volume nine, the entire volume nine no. is the unity of God. It's, really tw- it's a really 12-part entry. It has parts one through six, and parts seven through 12 will be in volume 10 if it's ever published. Who authored? Uh, Rabiel Khan was the main uh, oh. person behind it. And it's just places the source. Every single thing, yes. And it's organized so like, you have all the... So when I say it's <laughs> much more complicated than it has to be. By the way... Achtos as a concept is the bulk of volume eight. So there's unity as a concept in and of itself, and then there's when you apply unity to God. So, yeah. What was in five? Five is the significance of the letters Dalit and Hay or Hay and Vav. I don't remember. I think Hay and Vav. Why is it not published? I don't know. By the way, the, the first volume is like two thirds all about love. Love the human emotion, love of Hashem, different kinds of love under Hashem, 
Yes. The, the good news is, for anyone who's ever interested in learning about non-Jews, they put non-Jews under the entry Umois Ha'olam, Nations of the World, as opposed to Goyim, so that got it already. So there's, there's uh, like, I think, 100 pages on what Chassidus says about non-Jews and their souls. Maybe it's 70 pages. It's a lot. Maybe I'm exaggerating. It's, it's a lot. There's more about that than some Kabbalistic levels. So, yeah. There's a lot to learn. Thank you, Thank you. 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 Thank you.